Well, if you're new with us, we have been making our way through the Gospel of Luke, section by section, verse by verse, line by line. We generally will take the summers and kind of dip into the Psalms for a couple of months, and oftentimes at Christmas we'll kind of peel away from Luke to look at kind of the advent and the, the birth, the arrival of Jesus Christ into our world. But for the last couple of years now, two and a half years or so, we have been just kind of plugging our way through Luke, and Lord willing, the plan is to finish Luke right before Christmas. So, Merry Christmas. Uh, where we pick up here in Luke 18, Jesus is, as you know, well into his earthly ministry. And here specifically in this section of Luke, he is addressing quite pointedly those who are putting their confidence, are putting their trust in all kinds of other things than the Lord. And Jesus, who is never one to shy away from confrontation when it's necessary and beneficial, is quick to address the things that people are trusting in that are not the Lord. And that's exactly what we see him doing here. He is, he's challenging the complacent. He's challenging unbelievers. And he's challenging those who think that they can earn their status with God. And so this is where we pick up in Luke 18 with two men, two prayers, and two outcomes. Look at verse 9 with me if you would. The word of the Lord says, and he, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Well, just like last week, right here from the start, Luke, our author, gives us the primary point of the parable even before Jesus tells us what the parable is. It's it's almost like Luke is the voice of the narrator off stage who says, hey, Jesus is about to tell a parable and this is the audience that he's telling the parable to or this is why he's telling the parable. And that's significant because Jesus is about to tell this parable to people who think that God will accept them because of the kind of people they are, what they do, what they don't do, how they live. And they think that they have earned salvation, that they've earned their status with God. They think that what they do is the basis on which God will accept them. Now, if all of that were not bad enough, there's more. Because not only are the people in front of Jesus to whom he is speaking think that they have somehow earned their status with God through what they have done or what they've not done or their background, their education, their experience, their family, But to make matters worse, they then look down or treat others with contempt. They look at other people around them who may not be doing the good things that they're doing. And they think, God, I am so glad I am not like him. God, I'm I'm glad I'm not as bad as her. And Jesus, knowing this, 
responds to them with this parable, this story with an eternal truth. And the parable, if you were listening as Rachel read for us, centers around two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Now, the Pharisees were, at this point, a group that was well-known to Jesus. In fact, as we've made our way through the Gospel of Luke, we kind of see the Pharisees like popping up all over the place. And we know by now that Jesus and the Pharisees don't generally mix well together. They don't play well together. The Pharisees, who were the religious, Jewish religious leaders of the day, were jealous of Jesus' following. They couldn't stand his message, primarily because they were blinded by their own desire for power and influence. And so already here by Luke 18, Jesus has directed some stinging indictments against the Pharisees. In general, these, the Pharisees were consumed with what people thought of them. They were consumed with how they appeared to others, and so they gave all kinds of attention to how they looked on the outside and what they did and how they were seen by others. In fact, Jesus, in Matthew's gospel, tells them that they are like whitewashed tombs. They don't have spiritual life on the inside. They're dead. And yet they look clean on the outside. They look spick and span on the outside. But to the general population... At this time, the Pharisees looked and seemed so righteous. Like we read about the Pharisees and we get a certain picture of who the Pharisees were. And Jesus, God in the flesh, understood who the Pharisees were. But to the general people who lived in Jesus' day, the Pharisees looked righteous. They seemed righteous. They seemed moral. When the average Jew thought of the Pharisees, they generally thought, you know what, I need to be more like that. They're the standard of godliness. That's who the Pharisees were. The second person in this parable is a tax collector. The tax collectors were known in the first century generally to be cheats and frauds and traitors. And there were good reasons for that. Um, They lived in a culture where, you need to remember, the Romans were the occupying force. The, The Romans were the national government that was oppressing the Jewish people. And so when the occupying government came in, when the Romans came in, they required taxes of the Jews. And so one of the most advantageous ways to kind of get the tax money that they needed from the Jews was to recruit a fellow Jew to go to his other Jewish friends and neighbors and to glean taxes from them for the Roman government. And that's exactly what they did. And so you can see how Jews who became tax collectors were so hated because they were viewed as traitors. Like you're working for the the opposition here. Taking huge sums of money from their own people to give it to the wicked Romans. There's another reason that the tax collectors were hated, and that's because the tax collectors did not have a standard tax that they just taxed everyone, like everyone's taxed this amount or this percentage of your income. But when the Romans would hire Jewish tax collectors, they would tell them, okay, we're gonna hire you, but we're not gonna give you a salary. 
So they're thinking, okay, how are we going to get paid if we're not going to get a salary for doing this job? And the Romans were quick to say, okay, don't worry, though, because your salary can be whatever extra you want to charge on top of your services as a tax collector. So we're going to give you the tax rate that you need to charge. So you need to charge the, the, this particular Jew or this class of Jewish people, you need to charge them this amount for their Roman tax. But if you want to charge more than that, that's okay. You can charge double that if you want, and you can pocket the difference. So most of these Jews who had already kind of sold out their fellow Jews had no problem extorting money from their neighbors and their friends and their relatives so that they could line their own pockets. You can see why the tax collectors were disliked. And so as Jesus' audience hears this story being set up, they're already forming some opinions. Okay, a Pharisee and a tax collector go up to the temple to pray. Well, a Pharisee, we can understand. They're going to go to the temple because that's what Pharisees do. And they're such holy people. They're going to go and they're going to pray before God. In fact, I hope that this Pharisee actually prays for me because I have some needs in my own life. Maybe they have a special kind of window to God, access to the divine. But this tax collector... Like what business does he have going to the temple to pray? I mean, in fact, I hope God just strikes him down because of his corruption and his wickedness. Like he should get what he deserves. So these two men go up into the temple to pray, and these two men pray two very different prayers. And Jesus tells us about the Pharisees' prayer first. Look at verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, there are <clears throat> so many things wrong here. So many things that point to a self-righteous heart. Let's just point out a few. First, notice that he stands by himself, kind of aloof and removed. Now, if this were our only data point, the only thing that we knew about this Pharisee, we could kind of just dismiss this as maybe an insignificant detail or maybe Jesus is giving us kind of stage cues so that we can picture in our mind what's going on. But given everything else we know about this Pharisee and, and in general the Pharisees of Jesus' day, I think it becomes clear that Jesus wants us to see this man's self-centeredness not only in his words but also in his actions, also in his body language. He's aloof, he's apart, he doesn't, he doesn't want to mix with the other commoners in prayer. Secondly, notice <clears throat> that his prayer is entirely self-centered. Just look at all the eyes in his prayer. There are five of them, in fact. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. 
I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I mean, he's essentially saying, God, thank you that I am not like other people, wicked people, people like this lowly tax collector here. God, aren't you grateful that you have me? Third, notice his confidence comes from his works. Look at all I have done for you, God. Like, I've earned my spot. In fact, I go beyond what the law requires because I don't just fast on the the, the days that call for ceremonial fasting at different places in the year. And I don't even fast daily, but I fast twice a day. And I don't just give a tithe on what I earn. I tithe on all that I get. I go over and above what you ask. I know what the law is, and I don't just follow the law, but I like go out 100 miles, and then I build a fence around those laws, and then I don't even transgress those. And this man's prayer isn't a prayer of worship. He's not becoming, coming before the creator God of the universe to pray a prayer of praise or thanks or to bring concerns to him. No. Like his prayer is just an opportunity to brag about all the ways that God should be indebted to him. Like God, you, you kind of owe me here. His entire hope is in the fact that he is not as bad as other people especially like this tax collector. Now this is tragic. But here's what else is tragic. All of those things that the Pharisee was doing, the fasting, the giving, those are good things. Those are things that when done with a humble and worshipful heart, actually honor the Lord. In fact, we who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ should be about good works. Ephesians chapter 2 makes it clear that this is one of the reasons that Jesus Christ has saved us, is so that we would be people who do the good things that God has prepared for us to do. But here's the problem. Instead of seeing good works as something we do because we are made right with God, the Pharisee believed good works were something that could make himself right with God. There is a world of difference there. This Pharisee has made the critical error. In fact, it's one that we can make today if we are not careful. He confused the root with the fruit. We all know that trees need roots. They need a root system. If you have an apple tree, it needs a root system to sink deep down into the soil to draw up nourishment. It's the lifeblood of the tree is the root system of that tree. It's what gives and sustains life. But then healthy trees, healthy, a healthy apple tree, will then bear apples, will bear healthy fruit. The fruit doesn't cause the tree to have life, but the, but the fruit is evidence of the tree having life. And we know that one of the gifts that God gives to those he saves 
is the gift of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit produces the fruit in the lives of believers. Fruit, according to Galatians 5, like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Like, these are all good things. These are all signs of Holy Spirit life in a Christian. But here's the problem. While all of that fruit is evidence of life, none of those things actually create life. None of those things are the root of life. So what is the root of life? The root of our life, the root of salvation, is God's gracious work to save a people through the substitutionary death and resurrection of Jesus. A saving work that is to be received with the open hand of faith, realizing that we bring nothing to the table. Like we have nothing to offer God for our salvation except the sin which makes it necessary. So we turn from sin and we turn from unbelief and we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and we confess with our mouth, with our words that Jesus indeed is Lord and we believe in our heart that he is the son of God whom God raised from the dead and we are saved. That, friends, is the root of salvation. You see, our salvation is 100% the work of our triune God. The Father plans, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies. To use a theological term, it's monergistic, not synergistic. It's not me and God. It's God and God alone. And what do we do? We lay there dead in our sin as helpless sinners who can do no more to make ourselves alive than a tree without roots can make itself alive. All we can do is to receive the saving work of the Lord, turning to him and trusting him and loving him. And shockingly for us, and even more shockingly for this first audience, this is exactly what the tax collector does. In fact, this tax collector had probably never fasted a day in his life. He'd probably never given money to the work of the Lord. He may have extorted money, robbed money from the work of the Lord for all we know. But look at his prayer in verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, sinner. So let's go back for just <clears throat> let's go back for just a minute to the three things that we noticed about the Pharisees' prayer, and let's contrast them for a second. The Pharisees stood far off, aloof. Here we see with the tax collector, he stands far off, but he stands far off, aware of God's holiness and sinfulness, or in his sinfulness. You see, unlike the Pharisee who stood apart from God, 
or apart from the tax collector because he thought he was better, this tax collector stands far off because he is painfully aware that God is holy and he is sinful. He can't even bring himself to lift up his eyes to heaven. He's so overcome with his own unworthiness of God's grace that he beats his chest, which might seem weird to us, but it's a sign of sorrow and anguish. It might be like covering our face or falling to our knees today. This is a man who doesn't have merely worldly sorrow for his sin, like, man, it stinks I got caught, or it'd be nice to have a better life. No, this is a man who is legitimately broken over his sin. He's broken over his unworthiness to stand before the Lord on his own. Secondly, notice that his prayer is entirely God-centered. Entirely God-centered. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In fact, that may be the most beautiful prayer ever uttered by a human who is not also divine in all of Scripture. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He knows he has nothing to offer the Lord. Which brings us to third observation about his prayer. His hope is clearly only in the saving mercy of God. He is throwing himself on the mercy of God. It's interesting that there are so many similarities between this tax collector's prayer and David's prayer in Psalm 51. You remember King David, king of Israel, Psalm 51 is his prayer after he was confronted for committing both adultery and sanctioning murder. And he prays this to the Lord, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know that my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Friends, this is the root of salvation. God, I am a sinner who can do nothing to save myself from the just punishment of my sin, my only hope is your mercy. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan pastor, wrote, there is no rowing to paradise except upon the stream of repenting tears. That's good. I deserve an amen, right? Amen. There is no rowing to paradise except upon the stream of repenting tears. Repentance is required, he writes. It's not so much required to endear us to Christ as to endear Christ to us because till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. That's the problem here, isn't it, for the Pharisee? 
There's no admission of sin, no acknowledgement of the bitterness of his rebellion against God. Just example after example after example of how he actually has merited salvation. But not so this tax collector. This tax collector was throwing himself on the mercy of God because he recognized how unworthy he truly was. Two men, two prayers. This leads then thirdly to two outcomes. And I think for this parable to really land the way it's supposed to in our minds and in our hearts, we are supposed to see the stark contrast between the Pharisee and the tax collector. And helpfully, Jesus drives that home for us here in verse 14. He says, I tell you, speaking of the tax collector, this man went down to his house justified <clears throat> rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Like two men pray two prayers with two very different outcomes. But it's the tax collector, not the Pharisee, who went home justified before God. He went home with his sin forgiven, declared now to be in right standing with God. And this is a shocking reversal of roles. Like the Pharisee thought he was righteous and tried to justify himself. Like, God, look at all the stuff I have done for you. And all of it was good stuff. The problem is that all of that stuff in the life of a Christian is simply the root of God's saving work, or the fruit of God's saving work. It's not the root of our salvation. It's not the way that we are saved. And so for this Pharisee, the fact that he's even relying on all the things that he has done is just evidence that he's not truly saved. That it's just, at best, human effort. It's not even legitimate Holy Spirit fruit. Like we are not saved by what we do. We are saved as we respond to what Christ has done, throwing ourselves on the mercy of our creator God. And this tax collector knew that his only hope of being declared by God right in his sight would not come from inside himself. Like, not in me. It would only come from God. So this parable is dripping with the rich truth that a sinner completely empty of any personal righteousness can be declared by God righteous through repentant faith. Remember, Jesus is aiming this parable at those who trusted in their own righteousness, their own rightness before God as the way that they could stand confident before him like assured of his favor. But any confidence in our own righteousness is simply false hope. Because even the righteousness of the most righteous person you can think of right now, maybe somebody you know, maybe a relative, maybe they're in this room, maybe they're not, even the righteousness of that person still falls short of God's divine standard. As the church planter and missionary, the Apostle Paul wrote, 
For by works of the law, the things that we do, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Like we cannot fix our sin problem through what we do. Only through what Christ has done for us. The way we access that is not through our moral resume. Like, look at all the stuff I've done for you, God. But it's crying out to God that he would mercifully save us. You might be familiar with Romans 3.23, which says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But what we sometimes forget is Romans 3.24, which says, And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus. We are justified by his grace as a gift. Or as Paul would put it another way in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through your effort. No. Through your work. No. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Your salvation is not your own doing. The grace of God is not your own doing. Faith is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast, so that no one might stick out our chest in front of God one day and say, the reason you should allow me into your kingdom is because look at all the things I did. Look at all the things I didn't do. Look at how much better I was than the average person around me. No. By grace, we have been saved through faith, and this is not our own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that we may not boast, so that our boast might be only in the Lord. Because, Paul says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We don't become children of God by our good works. We become his children by God, by God's transforming and awakening power. And we respond to that saving work by trusting in him by faith. So how are we saved? We are saved by humbling ourselves before the Lord. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, this does not mean that our disposition as Christians should be to walk around like the tax collector. I feel that's necessary because sometimes in our kind of corner of evangelicalism, there can be kind of hints and traces of this idea that we should, as Christians, walk around continually with our heads down thinking just a worthless sinner. I don't deserve anything from the Lord. I'm nothing. I'm a wretch. I'm terrible. And forget that we have been justified. We have been adopted. We have been given a seat around the table with King Jesus that in prayer we can come boldly into the presence of our creator God, the creator of the universe. This is glorious. 
We have a new identity. We are declared to be saints, no longer defined by our sin. Just why I've said so often before, and you're sick of hearing it, my pet peeve is when Christians refer to themselves categorically as sinners. Do we sin? Yes, tragically, even as Christians sometimes. But categorically, we are not counted sinners. There's nowhere to be found in Scripture. Instead, Scripture over and over and over and over again categorically defines Christians as saints. And yet, at the very same time, completely holding to all of that, let us never forget that our place at the table with Christ was secured by the substitutionary work of Jesus and not by our own effort. We are and will always be debtors to the gracious work of God to save us and to make us his own. And when I say debtors, I don't mean like when you, 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 know, you buy a new car and you have a car payment. And at the very beginning, you're like, okay, I owe everything to the bank for this gift of a car. And yet, a year later, two years later, three years later, now I owe less to the bank because look at all the good things I have done every single month, sending in my check. And it's easy sometimes, I think, for us as Christians to begin to adopt that sort of mindset. At the beginning, when the Lord saves us, God's grace is amazing grace. Yet over time, we, we grow in godliness, we grow in Christ-likeness, and if we're not careful, we can begin to think, well, you know what? I still need the grace of God, but probably less than I needed it before because now look at all that I have contributed through my good works. No. We are and always will be debtors to the gracious work of the God who has saved us and made us his own. And sadly, the Pharisee missed this. His pride blinded him to his desperate need for God, which means he saw little need for repentance. This pride caused him to look down with contempt on others around him. And tragically, tragically, he may not have even known it when he walked home that day, completely blind to the fact that he was not justified before the Lord. But for the tax collector, his humility over his brokenness, over his sin, over his need of salvation saw him running to God for mercy. Guess what? God is merciful. He found mercy. He went home justified. I love that. Jesus is so clear. He didn't go home wondering, I wonder, if, I wonder if I'm repentant enough. I wonder if I'm broken enough. I wonder how long I need to continue to repent for the same thing. He went home justified. So let me ask you this morning, which of these two guys are you? Two from Dayton attended CCF's Sunday worship service. Both parked in the same parking lot. Both walked through the same doors, said hi to the same greeters. 
found a seat in the same section. Both sang the same song, stood up at the same time, sat down at the same time. Both opened their Bible to the same text of Scripture, followed along to the same sermon. And during prayer, at the end of the service, the first person prayed, God, thanks that I don't need this message. Thanks that I've made a lot of right decisions in my life. Thanks that I'm not like other people, people you know, hooked on drugs or addicted to porn or people who stir up fights on Twitter or get nasty when the service is bad at the restaurant. People that don't want to work, people that vote differently. Because I'm honest, I work hard, I'm a pretty good spouse, I'm a pretty good parent. I rarely miss a Sunday worship service. I even give to the church. I show up on work day. The second person also prayed. No list of sins, God, that I've avoided. No list of virtues that I pursue. No list of those I'm not like can earn myself a place with you. Oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. No way I dress, no fervency or eloquence of my prayer, no lifting my hands in the, the right places, the right time, to the right songs, no repeating of the right truths can justify a single wrong. No separation from the world, no work I do or, or gift that I give can cleanse my conscience and cleanse my hands. I cannot cause my soul to live. But Jesus died and rose again. The power of death is overthrown. Oh God, be merciful to me and merciful in Christ alone. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. And my weary load was borne by him. And he alone has given me rest. Which one will drive home justified today? You see, two men prayed two prayers and one went home justified. How will you go home? Let's pray together. Father, we simply ask this morning for your Holy Spirit to do his work among us through your word. I pray for those who are here this morning and are trusting in other things, whatever those things are, maybe even nice things, maybe even good things, but they are not trusting in 
your son, Jesus Christ, as the only means by which we can be saved. I pray that you would open the eyes of their heart. I pray, Father, that you would give the gift of saving faith, that they would turn and trust in you this morning, and then that they would physically turn and tell someone around them, or come after service up to the front and talk to me, or talk to someone they saw on the platform, that we can talk and celebrate and pray with them and encourage and help and counsel. Secondly, Father, I pray for those who are here who are trusting in you. You would give us a joy in your salvation. You would give us reminders daily of the rest that we now have in you, that we would be people who continue to live lives of repentance. Knowing we trust in you, we need you, as the old song says, every hour, every hour we need you. that our only hope, our only confidence would not be in us, even as we do the good works that you've prepared before. We would continue trusting by faith and grace, trusting in you, trusting in the work of your son, Jesus Christ, for us. It's the only means by which we can be saved. That would give us a joy, that would give us a hope that we would fight sin, we would repent when we do sin, all from that place of assurance this morning. So do your work, Father, and even as we sing this song, I pray that this would be our declaration, that this would be our response to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.